Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Part. It's the start of the Paralympic Games, so I thought who better to get on the show than one of the greatest Paralympians of all time. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson is on the podcast today. We are going to learn from the very, very, very best. She is an 11-time Paralympic gold medalist. She broke over... 30 world records and she won the London Marathon six times. She truly is the best in the world and she is on today's show. We learn so much from her when she talks about her training programs and her nutritional programs. Tani talks about family support, music and setting goals and now after her career as an athlete has finished, Tanny is now a cross-bench peer in the House of Lords. That's why she is Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. And because of her political background, we get into some politics, which I'm not usually an expert about. Well, not usually. I'm never an expert about. But we do discuss a little bit of politics on the show. We talk a little bit about disability rights, a little bit about Brexit, and also the power of social media. We talk all about that in the show. Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about today's sponsor. It is Audible. Audible is offering a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. Now, I don't know if you've seen it, but the advert for the Paralympic Games on Channel 4 is absolutely fantastic. It's inspiring. Try and look it up on YouTube. Try and watch it. It's really, really well done. And if you haven't watched much Paralympics before, give it a go. I honestly hadn't watched too much Paralympic Games before. But last year I was in Kazakhstan, I was in Almaty, I was doing a piece to see whether Almaty would get the Winter Olympic Games, which they didn't manage to. But while I was there I did a few other sports stories and one of them was on Paralympic powerlifting and I've got to say I was mesmerised by some of these people. They truly are the best in the world at what they do. One guy in particular from Iran, Siaman Rahman, he was powerlifting off the bench up to 295 kilos. That's like more than three of me. 
that it was absolutely unbelievable to see and the amount of dedication and hard work which goes into something like that. You truly have to be the best, the best in the world. So they're all on show in Rio in the Paralympic Games. If you're in the UK, it will be on Channel 4. Give it a watch. Trust me, you will be amazed. And it's an amazing chat with Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, and that's coming up next. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. You had a very accomplished sporting career, winning 11 Paralympic gold medals, 30 world records. You had a fantastic career. You're now a Baroness in the House of Lords. Why don't you tell our listeners what you're up to right now? Um, I work on a a mixture of things. Uh, I work on disability rights, so welfare reform, legal aid, um, sport and physical activity, about how people can be fitter and healthier. Um, Very specific stuff I'm working on is a buses bill, which is about making um, buses uh, more accessible for disabled people. So it's kind of quite a varied life that I have there. Um, I, I never sort of particularly planned to go into politics, but the House of Lords is amazing because people may not like or agree with what you say, but they give time to listen to you. So actually, it's a really empowering place to be um, in that that people want to learn. It's a bit like school, I guess. They they want to learn about different things and about your area of expertise. So I, I, I love my time there. It's a great place to be. And you're also still very busy with a lot of different charities. Is that right? Yeah, I, I sit on a, a number of charities. Um, I think, you know, for me, that's kind of always been quite important. So um, Sports Aid Foundation, which helps young um, talented athletes who aren't yet on lottery funding, um, Tennis Foundation. So um, th- there's kind of a number that I, I work with. And um, I, I think of myself, I'm very privileged that I get to work with a lot of people I like, which is is, is nice. So um, I think for me, you know, the, the stuff I do with charity is about giving something back because I've had a lot of help and support over the years. And I, I think I should um, kind of pay some of that forward to other people. With all that on your plate, how well organised are you? How, how good are you with time management? Uh, I think I'm all right. Um, it, it, it's sometimes quite difficult to get the balance right. I think the hardest thing is that because I live in the northeast of England uh, and I'm in London generally four days a week because of politics. Uh, it can be hard that I'm away from my family. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of sacrifice a lot for the work that I do. But um, I like being busy. I'm a bit of a workaholic, really. So um, I, I don't mind, you know, how much time I spend working because I, I kind of think I get I get to do a lot of things which are really good fun. Uh, I heard uh, in another interview uh, about that it was your family had, who had to give up a lot of sacrifices for your sporting career. And they're now having to give up a lot for your political career. Are they annoyed with you about this or how do they feel about everything? Um, I think sometimes my husband's quite happy that I'm away from him for four days a week, <laughs> to be honest. Um, no, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, before I, I made the decision to, to go into the Lords, um, you know, I spoke about it at length with my husband and my daughter was a little young for her to understand what I was doing. But um, I think it's quite important. I spend time with her explaining to her what I do. Um, you know, there are some things she's more interested in than others. Um, but but they're hugely supportive. You know, I couldn't have done it without my husband and, and my wider family. So I'm, I'm very lucky that they're, they're hugely supportive of the stuff that I choose to do. And you mentioned your husband. In your sporting career, he was your coach, I believe. Is that something you'd recommend to other athletes and sports people to be doing? 
uh it was quite an interesting relationship at times so you know we we started off just kind of as friends and then he became my boyfriend then he became my training partner and you know uh then I think we got married and he was my coach so it kind of went in different steps but you know he was an athlete himself and actually all I ever really wanted to do was beat him um <laughs> and the whole my Paralympic career that's what I tried to do I, I I didn't manage to do it but um it's uh, it, for for us. It worked really well because for me, you know, for a long time, wheelchair racing was the most important thing in my life, and and he understood that and and supported and helped and and wanted me to be good. So um, for for us, it it worked in, incredibly well. I mean, it's it's not always easy. I mean, we used to joke that if we had the team around, we were very clear. If I was having a husband wife row with him, or I was having a athlete coach discussion, or I was at one point he was my performance director, so. You know, I was having an athlete performance discussion, which was incredibly polite. So for us, it was important to kind of differentiate and for the rest of the team to understand what kind of discussion we were having. Mm. And you said your aims were to beat him. How would you normally set other goals? Would you say, I want to win this at a Paralympics? I want to win this at a certain race? And and how often would these goals get updated? Um, we, We always planned about four years ahead, sort of rolling four years because you can't get to the end of a Paralympic cycle and then suddenly start trying to think about where you want to be because every year is kind of an evolution as you move forward. So um, we'd certainly have a huge amount of detail around the, the, the following two years of training and preparation with like the, the, the four-year goal at the end. So it, it, it would sometimes, you know, get updated, you know, kind of could be weekly, monthly if you had a great race or did, did very well or if stuff wasn't working out. So I think what we were good at doing was was that planning, preparation, and and working out the best training to do. I think I was also good at making myself do things in training that I didn't enjoy, because you tend to the things you don't like are the things you're not so good at, and that's where you can make massive improvements. So I think because I always had very high aspirations, I was I was able to make myself do all the stuff I had to. So in the whole of my career, I probably only missed a handful of training sessions, because you know you you can't aspire to be the best in the world and, and you know find excuses for what you do you know there, are, there aren't any excuses you just have to get your head down and, and work really hard mm, a couple of days ago I spoke to the uh, 2008 decathlon Olympic champion Brian Clay and he said something similar to what you said where he would train so hard in training that actually when it came to competing that was easy he knew that he'd done all the hard work that this day would be a lot easier than a training day so why, why don't you uh, tell our listeners what was a typical training day for you? What what would be the, the schedule and routine of a, a typical training day? Um, well, we were training sort of 15 to 18 times a week. Um, I, I was never sort of a, a very early riser. So probably first training session of the day would be 9.30 and then kind of mid-afternoon and then early evening. Um, combination between most of it would be training on the roads, um, 150 plus miles a week. Um, three or four sessions in the gym and then you know body weight exercises conditioning physio massa um you know and then you've got all the technical stuff of building chairs gloves so it it's sort of fairly all-encompassing actually and um, I used to have a day off a week I had other friends who worked on on different cycles um you know in your day off that's when you catch up on housework and shopping and and all the other things that you have to do so um but but that was great. I mean, I loved it. It's, it's a huge privilege being a GB athlete. So um, I have no regrets. I mean, mo- to be honest, most of it's really boring. You know, t- training's just dull, you know, because I lived in the northeast. Of, I still live in the northeast of England. And, you know, I spent a lot of time on the trunk road between Redcar and Middlesbrough. Um, 
and it's quite repetitive. So for those moments where it's glamorous and you're competing in front of 95,000 people, that's a fantastic. But that doesn't happen that often, you know, in, in a year. The vast majority of the time, it's you and a couple of training partners, if you're lucky. Is that difficult to adjust to when, when you do go to these big stadiums with so many people, when you are used to just training by yourself or competing in smaller events where you've then got these thousands of people? How, do, how does your mind cope with that? Um, you just kind of get used to sort of, you, you've got to switch it off, actually. You can't get excited about who's around or who's watching or how noisy the crowd is. So bizarrely, even when you're competing in front of tens of thousands of people, you, you, you don't hear it. Um, and you know, you, you, there's part of you that is there to perform because that's why you're an athlete. But um, you, you just have to kind of try and ignore, there's all this stuff that you can't control as an athlete. So you just have to forget about it to be to be perfectly honest but it's definitely you know it's it's much nicer competing in front of a large crowd than the small crowd um and i've kind of had experience of both did you have any particular pre-race rituals um n- not really i i had um sort of a very um sort of balanced sort of warm-up and and i did very similar things in warm-up but i'm not really a very ritual person i didn't listen to certain bits of music or uh, anything like that um you know, I had friends who who did, but for me, I, I used music in training, but not in kind of race preparation. So, um, mostly, I, I think probably the most annoying thing that I used to do is I used to like to be at the track with plenty of time to spare, which is fine if you're racing at seven o'clock in the evening, but not so good if you're racing at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, so, I, I used to like to be at the track a couple of hours before my race just to be settled and make sure everything was okay. So, um, yeah, I, some of my coaches weren't always very happy with that. What type of music were you listening to in training? Um, it, it varied quite a lot. Probably a lot of 80s pop music, sort of stuff that was sort of fairly uplifting and sort of um, kind of a, a, a bit more cheerful to, to listen to. So um, especially, I mean, if, if the weather's very bad, we, we've got a treadmill in our garage and rollers, like bike rollers that we train on, and that's really, really boring. So a bit of music helps that, you know, if you're spending an hour and a half on rollers, you need something to help pass the time. And what about nutrition? How good was your diet back then? And, and did you know enough back when you were competing? Because sort of, there's so much information out now, but there probably wasn't back in the late 80s, early 90s. Is there is there anything that you you know now from nutrition that you might have wished you'd known then at all? No, my, my nutrition was really good because there's no point spending lots of time training if you're not thinking about what you eat and how much you sleep. So, um I'm I'm really keen still, you know, for the athletes that we work with that, you know, that they get their nutrition from real food. So, you know, there's loads of products on the market now with, you know, protein and carb drinks and all these different bars and things. Um, but but actually, I think real food's quite good. So you have to be very organized in terms of how you plan your food um, and, and your nutrition. So um, it, we lived on a lot of chicken, steamed vegetables and pastoral rice. But, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, for me, it was... Um, Food, getting the right food balance was 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 massively important. So, uh, uh, I guess you know hydration is is hugely important. Like one of the we used to drink squash with salt in it, which is is still one of the best things you can have to to rehydrate after training. Not not terribly pleasant, a bit of an acquired taste. So, I I think um, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to drink that anymore. <laughs> um, so um, no, I I think we. We, we spent a lot of time learning about everything around the sport. It's it's not just about when you turn up on race day. It's everything that you could possibly do leading up to race day. Mm. 
So your first Olympics was 1988 uh, in Seoul, your first Paralympics, in mm. fact. Uh, how, how was that experience for you? Um, it was amazing because um, it the Games had been in Rome in 1960 um, after the Olympics and then sort of in the intervening years they'd gone off to different countries or different cities within the host country. So Seoul was the first time that the two Games came together and no one really knew what to expect. Um, but, you know, the packed stadiums, you know, loads of people were watching uh, and it, it was really fun, you know, very different culture to be in, very different food, you know, not being able to speak any other language. You know, I was 18, 19 when I went. So, you know, it was a, a, a big change for me to go there. But I went, I won a bronze medal. And, you know, I think for me that that made me realize that I really wanted to be an athlete. And if that's what I wanted to do, I had to kind of knuckle down. I learned a huge amount from the experience of Seoul and, um that kind of set me up for the next four-year cycle. Mm. And four years later, Barcelona, you won four golds. How did it feel when you won that first gold? Amazing. Um, just just an incredible experience uh, and very exciting. Uh, and, and knowing that, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd gone into 92 and, and broken world records in the four distances that I competed over, knowing that I'd made that sort of jump was, was brilliant. Um, my dad and my sister were there. My mum didn't like watching me compete, so she stayed at home. Um, but uh, it was brilliant to have my, you know, my family there and, and get to share that kind of moment with them. So, and Barcelona was a great games, you know, just beautiful venues, lovely weather, um, and and also one of the sponsors, uh, charity called Onso, which is a charity for blind people in Spain. You know, they they put a huge amount of money into the games, and and they recognised how important it was for them to. Um, to, to do a good game so I think it it really stepped up the level of Paralympic organization at that point you you finished those games with four golds was it then difficult to stay motivated when you achieved such great success no the motivation wasn't hard at all because once once you've achieved you just want to keep doing it it's it's actually um it I think it's more motivating for me it was because I didn't want that to be the only games that I won a gold medal at so um, you know, the next four years, you know, back in training, again, was making big jumps and, and huge improvements. Uh, you know, I got to Atlanta in 96 and I, I came away with a golden three silvers. Uh, you know, in, in three of my four events, there was someone quicker than me. You know, and there's there's nothing that you can do about that. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily great at the time because the team were expecting me to win four goals. And, you know, the medal table is based around gold medals, silver and bronzes are sort of only count if you've, you've you've tied another country on gold medals. So um, it's it's a pretty harsh world in sport. Um, I think there are a lot of people around who thought I should retire. Um, you know, one of my um, team managers told me he thought I was done and I should stop. Um, but, you know, for me, that, that wasn't an option. I knew that I wanted to keep going. Yeah. Were you disappointed or, or did you look at it as, you know, these are these are silver medals. These are something which so many people in the world would dream to be having. And, you know, uh, it's not gold this time, but you can get gold again because, uh, you know, there's different feelings you see of uh, the athletes in the Olympics. Now, some are absolutely delighted with silver and mm. some are very disappointed. Um, I felt very ambivalent about my silver medals, to be honest. So, you know, in Seoul, I won a bronze. In, in Atlanta, I lost three goals. Mm. So, um, you know, the 200 metres, I broke the world record in the semi, but, you know, couldn't replicate that in the final. So, um, you know, it's it's nice to have them, but uh, and I'd rather three silvers to, to none. Um, 
but that wasn't what I was going to do. You know, I, I was going there to try and win four gold medals. So um, I, I didn't quite achieve that. So um, again, in a different way, I found that very motivating because uh, I, I wanted to, to come back and, and be number one in the world again. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Don't worry, we've got more from Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson in just a moment. But I just wanted to remind you that for you, the listeners of the Best in the World with Richard Parr podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And in fact, if you've enjoyed this chat so far with Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson, then maybe you'd like to listen to her audiobook. It is on Audible. It's called Aim High and you get even more insight than we're giving you today for free on the Best in the World podcast, and you can download this for free with Audible. All you've got to do to download your free audiobook today, that's today, that's right now once you finish listening to this podcast, is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. One more time for you, it's audibletrial.com forward slash best for your free audiobook. Aim high. That's Tanny Gray Thompson's book, but you should be aiming high anyway because you listen to the best in the world. So let's get back to my conversation with Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. I've heard you say that you had four or five perfect races. Is there any one in particular you look on, you look back on the most fondly? Uh, there was a 400-meter race in Switzerland in 2002. Um, so it was the summer after I gave birth to my daughter. And I remember one of my team managers telling me that um, me becoming a mother would make me soft and I wouldn't be a very good athlete. So that was quite a short conversation I had with him. Um, uh yeah, it was a very short conversation. And uh, I remember just just 
I can almost even now remember every single push that race to break the world record. Um, my husband was there and he, he wasn't by the clock um, to see the time for the race. So I'd come off the track. I'd, I'd known how quick I was. And I was, you know, very excited. And he looked at me and he just, um, some of the other team mates were around. And, and he looked at me and he said, your first six pushes weren't great. You need to nail that, you know, in the next race. And I remember all the other guys on the team just looked at him and went, did you see the time? And he was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, just, yeah, but she needs to nail it. And then he turned around and he looked at the clock and he went, ah, yeah, I'm still right. You still need to nail the first six pushes. <laughs> so um, that, that was quite funny. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was it definitely one of the best races of my life. So after 96, you had two more Olympics. You ended up winning, uh, I believe it was four golds then later in uh, in Sydney in 2000. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and so did you feel that was a year of re- redemption after 96? I, th- I think so, because um, it, it, felt great. it felt great to be on the podium four times, which is uh, a nice place to be. Um, and it, it felt that... Uh, all the hard work that I'd put in was 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 justified, really. And you know, asking my family to you know put up with me competing uh, for another four years is is always difficult. So, um, and you know, I, I did one more cycle after that as well. But uh, it felt good because again, it's that difference between whether you think you've won or you've lost. You know, some of the gold medals I've won, I wouldn't count in you know my top ten races. Some of them are in my top 10 races, you know, so sometimes you can win when you're, you know, you're not necessarily the good best person on the day, but you have a bit of luck or you make the right decision. And sometimes, you know, you can lose and you are the best, you know, it's a winning and losing. And the gold medal is, is this very complicated thing that, that goes on. So uh, it, it, it felt amazing to be back winning and, and, um, and, and being number one again. So because actually for most of that cycle between Atlanta and Sydney, I was number one in the world. And by by 2007, you decided to retire from the sport. How difficult was that? And and how difficult was it to adjust to a life without it? It wasn't difficult to decide to stop. But, you know, emotionally and physically, I was I was done. Um, you know, actually, I knew uh, after Athens that I wasn't going to do another four-year cycle. Uh, and I probably knew in 2005 that it, it was going to be some point that following year that I stopped. Um, as I went through 2006, I I was sick and I was getting some injuries and I didn't have a great world championships. Uh, I won a gold, silver and bronze, but I, I, I wasn't competing at, at my best. So I, I made the decision then that I was going to retire early in 2007. I wanted it to be in, on home soil. I wanted my family around, um, which I, if I'd retired at an international race, that would have been hard to have them close by. Um, I mean, very little thing. I, I wanted to have a dinner to say thank you to all the people who'd helped me in my sporting career. And again, if I'd been away, I couldn't have done that in the way that I wanted to do it. So um, I'd actually been planning my transition for quite a few years before that, because in sport, you never know when you're going to be done. You could get injured or your team manager drops you. So it, it life outside, I, you know, nothing is going to be the same as competing in front of 90,000 people, but I don't want it to be. But for me, I, I didn't, I'm, I'm quite organised and I like planning things. I didn't want to get to the end and then think, what am I going to do? I wanted some of that set in, in place beforehand. And, you know, we're lucky by by that point, we'd won the right to host the Olympic and Paralympic Games. I had an opportunity to work with the organising committee. Uh, and then, you know, it, it kind of went from there. So for me, that kind of planning that transition is incredibly important. Mm. Well, 2010, 
you went into the House of Lords. Was there any uh, any part of your daily routine or anything that you used as an athlete which was able to help you make that adjustment more easily than had you not been involved in sports? Uh, I think what sport taught me is that, you know, the rules are really important. So, you know, it's, it's important in athletics to know what you can and can't get disqualified for doing. Um, and it's it's the same in politics. So there's a lot of rules about how we speak to each other in the chamber and how we interact with each, with each other um, about, you know, there's all sorts of different ways of of, of getting uh, legislation through that you, you want to try and do. So for me, it's about learning the rules and and enjoying the moment, which is really important to do and, and working hard. You know, these days, uh, bizarrely, everything we do is time limited. So it's a bit like life in sports. So, you know, you go into a debate, you have a maximum time that you can speak for. So it might be three minutes, it might be six minutes. And within that time allocation, you have to make an impact. So, you know, I, I've previously I've spent five days writing a speech that could be no longer than two minutes. So a lot of the stuff from sport just transfers really well into to life in politics. Mm. And you said that you weren't definitely sure that you'd end up in a life in politics and uh, politics hasn't always been something that many young people are interested in. Do you think the Brexit debate has kind of helped change that? Like, for example, whenever I went on my Facebook page for the last two months, it was full of opinion and political opinion, which wasn't necessarily there before. I hope sort of young people have realised the importance of voting. Um so, you know, one of my grandparents, she was born in like 1900. So my grandmother grew up without the right to vote. So it was incredibly important for her. So she used to talk about it all the time. You know, you know, when she got married, she actually had no choice. She had to give up work because, you know, companies didn't employ married women. So, um, you know, for me, that that kind of right to vote was and, and the importance of voting was always there and having an opinion. Um, and I think over time, that's become less important as we move further away from the Second World War, that's become sort of important, uh, less important. So uh, I, I'm, I'm hugely disappointed by how little politics is taught in school, you know, uh, how difficult it can be for young people to register to vote. But I, th- I think Brexit has um, made people understand that they, they need to be more aware of what's going on in the world and um, they need to be aware of, of how they vote because it does have a big impact on everybody. Mm. Uh, I noticed you're very involved in Twitter. I mentioned social media there. How much do you enjoy using social networks? Uh, I, I love social networking. Um, I think you've got to be careful. You know, I've got opinions on everything, but not everything I think should be public. Um, you know, sometimes you can get very interesting reactions from people. Uh, I, I do get trolled a bit, um, which is, is quite variable. So, you know, if you, you, I think you have to be a bit careful sometimes about not taking too much of it to heart um, because people can be very aggressive if they have a different opinion. Um, but but for me, it's, an, it's a great way of communicating with people. It's a great way of me learning what's going on in the world. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Does it need to be better policed when you say you're getting trolled? Is there a fine line between uh, 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 abuse and opinion? Um, I think there is a fine line between people thinking they have freedom of speech and being abusive. So there are some people who hide behind freedom of speech um, and hide behind anonymity on social media, which I, I don't. So if if somebody, um, you know, has a very vague username, I'm, I'm far less likely to engage with them in, in any kind of political discussion. I'm happy to explain, you know, um, I, I think I should how I vote on things or why I vote. Um 
and you know I kind of have to justify it to myself in a kind of moral sense but uh, I, th- I think people sometimes feel that in, in a way they wouldn't say things to your face they feel that through social media that they can do that so Sometimes, you know, I've had a couple of people recently who've come back the next day and apologised because it was a bit late at night or they're tired or they maybe had a glass of wine and then realised some of the things they've said weren't weren't terribly smart. So, um, you know, I do try to be polite as possible on, on social media because I, th- I think it's important that, that I kind of remain objective and, um, you know, behave in a certain way. Mm. Well, thank you so much for this interview. Baroness, uh, before we go, why don't you just tell our listeners how they can continue to follow your work and what you're up to on Twitter and social media and any other websites or any other forms of communication. That would be wonderful. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Tanny underscore GT. And uh, I've also got my own website, which is tanny.co.uk. So uh, all the latest stuff I'm doing in the politics I'm involved in and the sport I'm involved in is is all there. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Thanks again to Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson for being on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. Really appreciate her time in her very busy schedule working in the House of Lords. An incredible athletic resume and an inspiring story from her. But... Tanny Gray-Thompson isn't the only Paralympian we've ever had on the best in the world with Richard Parr. We've also had Alfonso Cunningham. He was on episode three. And we've also had Amy Mullins. She was also on the podcast. Two fantastic guests, Paralympians who are the best in the world. And they've been on the show. Go back and listen to those previous episodes. And if you've liked this show or any of our back catalogue any of our previous episodes what i'd love you to do is go on to itunes and click subscribe firstly so you get all the new latest podcasts but also rate and review it really helps me and our show i would really appreciate it if you spend those 30 seconds doing that for me just want to remind you all the different ways you can get in touch with me on twitter i'm at richard underscore par that's the same for instagram if you want to see some pictures You can follow the show on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash best in the world with Richard Parr. Yeah, I know it's quite a long title, but it's the name of the show. That's kind of what we have to do. And also there's more on richardparr.net, including on the media page. I've got a video of my time with the powerlifters, which I was speaking about earlier in the show, with the powerlifters in Kazakhstan, the Iranian Siaman Rahman and other great stars from the Paralympics. If you want to go back and see that, that's richardparr.net. There's also a contact page. If you have any suggestions about the show, what you like, what you don't like, or absolutely anything you want to tell me. Perhaps there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show and we can try and reach out and get them on the program because we love learning about the best in the world. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll have another great guest next Wednesday. Goodbye for now. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.